from the Hill Country of Texas, this is One Radio Network. Okay, here we go. It is exactly 7 o'clock Central Time in beautiful Dripping Springs, Texas, wherever you are across Across America or across the world, you're ready for the real world of money. It's a, re- a regular Wednesday night extravaganza here on One Radio Network. We have a call in line for you, and the phones are ready to work, and they do work. 888-1-NET-6. 888-1-NET-6. We'll put you on hold immediately. You can hear the program on hold. Turn down your computer, and then we'll pick it up live on the air. Our guest every Wednesday for The Real World of Money is uh, a gentleman who's been at this for many moons, uh, over 25 years, a currency historian. He's a nationally recognized expert in the United States monetary system. He's written two books, Secret World of Money, and Uncle Sam cooks the books in Hawthorne, New Jersey, where he's getting into big trouble over free speech, is my good friend and... uh, uh, co-patriot here, Mr. Andrew Goss. Good evening, Andrew. Good evening, Patrick. And you are getting in trouble. You just told me about uh, they don't want you to have your Ron Paul sign on your yard anymore. No, they uh, came oh, down really? with the police. Chief of police came down armed with two other policemen in tow. Really? Uh, really? Yeah, really. To deal with this major crime. And they're writing uh, in editorials in the paper, and the ACLU says that they'll, they'd like to defend you. Yeah, what do you call that stirring up the smell? That's uh, <laughs> You're doing it. I think I'm doing it. And, and you know, the, the gist of it is that they pass these unconstitutional ordinances at the borough level, and then they count on the fact that no one is going to stand up for their rights. So that's exactly what happened here. Uh, I was sharing with you off air the litany of bad law here in Hawthorne that, that passes as a, a regulation. You know, you can't park your car on on the grass. It has to be in the driveway. <laughs> you can't take, you can't leave your Christmas tree lights up more than thirty days. Uh, mm-hmm. Easter bunny, same thing. You know, you got to take that Easter bunny down. Mm-hmm. Uh, these sorts of things that regulate private property are absolutely uh, disgusting to me. And so, I'm I'm blessed to be given the opportunity to stand up. You know, I don't have to pick up a gun. I don't have to go to Iraq. I don't have to go to Vietnam. Right. I don't have to lay my life down. I just got to spend a little money on lawyers. And uh, Lord knows I'm ready to do that because I've had enough. Well, we're doing a weekly show on the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence with uh, Desi Andrews. And we'll talk about that next week. But it certainly seems to me, and I'm no expert, but uh, in your estimation, it is unconstitutional for a city or a borough or anything else tell you about your free speech? Well, in this instance, uh, the borough only outlaws political signs. Ah. You know, if I wanted to put a sign in my front lawn that said, uh, you know, um, liberty for sale, <laughs> I could certainly do that. Mm-hmm. You know, I could sell an item. Uh, as a matter of fact, the, the building right next door has a for sale sign in the yard, and that is perfectly legal. Ah. It's the political sign. So then it becomes content restricted. And once you restrict content of what someone can put on a sign without restricting the sign itself, now you've crossed into the realm of the First Amendment. Uh-huh. And so you're going to take them to the mat, huh? I certainly am. Somebody Good for needs you. to. Somebody yeah. needs. Yeah. Yeah. Our telephone number, 888-1-NET-6. Let it ring. We'll put you on hold, and then we'll put you on the air. We'll get into money for a second. Along the same line, I wanted to ask you about this national idea. I know that you follow these kinds of things. I heard uh, Governor Switzer, the governor of Idaho, just a great guy. I don't know if you've heard anything about him, but uh, they're threatening 
because he doesn't want to put it in Idaho, the national ID, the government uh, Homeland Security is saying, well, if residents of Idaho fly or try to fly commercial airlines without a state or national ID, we're not going to let them fly. And Governor Switzer says, blah, 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 blah. You guys can't do that. You're not, and we're not going to do it. Just leave me alone. Leave us alone. What, am I moving to Idaho? Is that yeah. Isn't he, oh, he sounds yeah. great, man. He, he sounds said, like my kind of guy. Yeah, he said that there's no way that you guys have any jurisdiction over this. Just get a life. We're just not doing it. In, uh, in here in New Jersey, what they threaten with is the they re- withhold highway funds. So oh, yeah. Our legislature caved like a bunch of cheap uh, barroom trollops. You uh-huh. know? They, yeah. they said, absolutely, yeah. What do you guys need us to do? Oh, mm-hmm. what? Mm-hmm. ID our people? No problem. We got that for you. Now, I know you followed this for a while, Andrew Goss, but do you think there's anything really as spooky about a national ID? Why? Why do so many people get so upset about this? Hey, hey, come on. You know, who am I offending by not having ID on me? If I'm just walking around, like, what the next thing will be, okay, well, then you got to produce your ID because we know you have one. Oh, I see. And well, now you got to produce it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, stand in line over here and show us your papers, please. Oh, yeah. Well, that, that doesn't sound good at all. No, it doesn't. Uh, uh-huh. In fact, you, know, you remember uh, maybe from previous conversations, uh, my daughters, who are grown women now, don't have social security numbers. I know, and we'll, right. we'll talk about that sometime. That's amazing. Uh, uh, yeah. And so they've I, gone through life without it and do just fine, thank you. Well, yeah, kind of like the governor of Idaho. You know, mm-hmm. they have to stand up every now and then and dust somebody off. But the reality, you can't be forced to join any national enumeration scheme. Uh, they certainly can't withhold your rights uh, on the basis of your not following that. Hey, let's put it bluntly as it could be, okay? If the federal government had jurisdiction here, they would just pass a law that says everybody has to get a national ID. They wouldn't try to force the states to do it through coercion mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and blackmail, which is what they're doing. You know, they'll cut off your highway funds. They'll cut off your education funds, et cetera, et cetera. And the whole, co- the whole contract between the states, the several states, and the United States government is, in fact, the Constitution. And the Constitution uh, does not give the federal government permission to do anything except, I think, to regulate commerce in between right. the state, right? Very limited powers. Yeah. But that's what that Social Security thing is all about. You know, once you uh, join the club, so oh, you're speak, in, aren't you're you? in. You know, it's kind of like if you're playing baseball and you're a baseball player and now you've joined uh, the Major League Baseball Association or whatever it is, and you're out on the field and you suddenly get the desire to shout something out that the umpire finds offensive. Now, in fact, a, a, a person in the stands might shout the very same thing and be allowed to, but you, having signed up, can't say it. Mm. And if you do say it, then the umpire will throw you off the field. He might even fine you or whatever it is they do to baseball players. But that's unconstitutional. Or don't you have a right to free speech? Well, not when you join the club. You've surrendered your rights and you've traded them. So, you know, there is this second class of citizenship, and we could spend a whole show doing on uh, on that subject. But, mm-hmm. you know, the idea of a 14th Amendment citizen, a, a person that uh, was given their rights by the District of Columbia, as opposed to a natural-born free citizen of the several states, uh, th- they're two different classes. And when you look at the hierarchy of sovereignty, at the top of the chart would, of course, be God, you know, who hands his powers down to that uh, free-born individual who then uh, created the state, which uh, got together and created the, uh, wrote the Constitution and created the federal government. And then the federal government created this second class or 14th Amendment citizen. 
We've all been convinced to trade our superior status right there below God for this 14th Amendment status right there below the federal government. And once we do that, then they pretty much have the authority and the power to extend their jurisdiction over to us wherever we might be. And what did the 14th Amendment do? Well, it fashioned a class of citizenship for uh, those uh, freed slaves, essentially, that didn't have. Remember the Dred Scott decision right. where you know, he went into court and said, I want to sue. And they said, well, you don't have standing because you're not a person. And so uh, this was remedied by creating this 14th Amendment class of citizen, if you will, that whose rights are derived. You know, think of a naturalized citizen, for example. That's a 14th Amendment citizen. They weren't born in any state. Their citizenship was granted to them by the District of Columbia. And so they are now, uh, have the, all the rights and privileges of a, of a citizen, but all the obligations of a, of a slave. But now you and I, we're not 14th Amendment citizens. Only if they ask us and we claim to be. I mean, remember. What do you mean now? Why, why would we say, yeah? Do well, we... I don't know. How, how many times have you ever seen a form, a uh, banking form or anything? Mm. You signed it and it said, are you a U.S. citizen? What did you say? Yeah. Did you say yes? Yeah. <laughs> well, then, okay, you are one. You've sworn under oath that you're one. Uh, you have a social security number? Yeah. Well, you one. You know, unfortunately, I'm one. But my daughters aren't. My oh, you, daughters... Mean, you mean we all are one because at one point or another we... We joined. But but when you sign something that you don't know the true meaning of it, is, is it a legal contract? Well, it is until you can prove constructive fraud. Like you can go into court and say, oh, well, I didn't know that this was the, what I was right, doing. Right, right, right. But then the burden is upon you to prove you didn't know what you were doing. Mm. Uh, you're assumed to have known. Mm. Otherwise, why would you enter into a contract? So then by, by, by making everyone ex post facto or de facto, into a 14th Amendment citizen, the United States government says that we can just tell you what to do. Right. Essentially. Yeah, no matter where you are. Uh -huh. We can legislate you know, your activities right down to your micromanage. Now, Carol Quigley classified it this way. He said they put a velvet glove on the iron fist. Mm -hmm. you know, they don't just come right out and say, mm -hmm. hey, you're a slave, you got to do what we say. Mm -hmm. They have this pretense of rights and constitutional uh, laws and things of this nature, but... When it gets right down to it, as Quigley said, when they remove the uh, velvet glove from the iron fist, then you'll know where you really stand. <laughs> yeah. If you are uh, pondering renting or buying a home now or financing uh, your own business or thinking about borrowing money to do something or saving for your children's education, protecting your 401k, you have a question for Andrew Goss, here's the time to do it. 888-1-NET-6, 888-1-NET-6. We'll put you on hold real quick, and then you'll be listening to the program on hold, and then we'll just pick it up live on the air. Andrew's a currency historian of 25 years, and uh, Uncle Sam cooks the books, and The Secret World of Money is his, his two books, and he's here every Wednesday night, and also will be here next uh, Saturday on KLBJ Radio. Well, last week, Andrew, we talked about the Bear Stearns deal, and where the government, uh, to the tune of about $30 billion, or the Federal Reserve did some magic work with creating dollars and, and, and essentially bailing them out, even though they keep saying, no, no, it wasn't a bailout. Now then this past, in the past few days, something else happened. They said, well, we're going to give you another billion dollars. Uh, J.P. Morgan says we're going to give Bear Stearns another billion dollars. And um, because somebody didn't sign some papers or something, uh, what do you know about what do you what do you know about this? Well, talk about the biggest theft ever. 
you know, they bought that company for a quarter of the price or value of the Midtown real estate there. You know, that right. Manhattan real estate's pretty expensive stuff. But I understand now the Senate's going to hold hearings on the Bear Stearns takeover. So we're going to hear something, maybe. Yeah. Maybe. All right, let's take this call. Where are you calling from? Hello, where are you calling from? Hello? Hello? Well, we lost them. Give us a call. Well, it'll work. 888-1-NET-6. We've been doing it all week. Just we'll put you on hold. Okay, so someone someone said in an article that I read that, let me see if I can find this, that this whole Bear Stearns bailout thing was much much more dramatic or possibly uh, fiasco-like than one thinks were that they averted about a uh, up to a five hundred trillion dollar derivative meltdown. Is, right? Is that true? Well, yeah. You know, Bear Stearns. I mean, five hundred trillion. Yeah, yeah. Wow. You know, derivatives count on this. They count on everybody doing what they're supposed to do. If you're betting that you know rates are going up and the other guy's betting that rates are going down, if he loses, you got to be paid. Especially if your entire, if you're really using your hedging. You know, the word hedge funds, right? If you're really using your stake in a hedge fund to do what you're supposed to be doing, which is hedging some separate bet, and you've made this huge bet that uh, interest rates are are not going to go down, and they do, um, you know that you're protected. You're not going to lose money, so you've got your books figured without losing money. And then you find out that the counterparty to your transaction goes bad and can't pay you. There goes your hedge. There goes your books. Now you can't pay your bills, and so the guy that you owe money to, he can't get his money, and it just rolls ever forward. The way that these guys manipulate the system is by using derivatives to make enormous bets on minuscule moves, and they amplify their gains by borrowing money to bet. You know, imagine you know the wheel is going to land on Blackett in Las Vegas, so you mortgage your house and borrow all your credit card money and mm-hmm. fly to Las Vegas and put a bet on black. Mm-hmm. It's all borrowed money, and if you lost, you would be bankrupt to the core, and so would everybody you know. But you know you're not going to lose, so you make the bet. Isn't it, is not is it not strange that the Federal Reserve can, can take our money and dilute it with newly created funds to cover uh, a company that essentially – gambled foolishly well yes and no i mean well but though i guess you have to look at the big picture and say well then what would be the upshot if they didn't right right yeah yeah. what would be the result if they didn't what Mm -hmm. i find troubling about the whole thing Mm. is that jp morgan chase as i'll point out again is one of the primary owners of the federal reserve bank of new york okay so what you have is in effect an official regulatory body in effect the federal reserve board Essentially, telling Bear Stearns, the only way that we'll bail you out is if you agree to be stolen by the person that owns our entity. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. You know, if they yeah. would have just gone straight to Bear Stearns and said, okay, here's the money you need to continue in business, mm-hmm. that would have been bad enough. Mm-hmm. And we could argue about whether or not there's moral hazard there. But what they said, in effect, was, oh, no, we won't give you the money. But we'll give it to this entity that owns the majority stake in our entity, and then they get to take you over. 
So it's just another example of what Thomas Jefferson said, that, hey, if we allow these guys to set up banks, and I'm paraphrasing, obviously, then they're going to set up corporations that, through inflation and deflation, they're going to take all the property around. That's exactly what these guys did. Hmm. They used their position as insiders, owners of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, capitalized upon that position to prey upon this weakened firm, which is, uh, you know, the second biggest issuer of, uh, of bond debt, derivative bond debt in the country, in the world, in fact. Okay, when you say derivative bond debt, what, what does that mean to us? So how can we understand what that means? Derivative <sighs> bond debt. You know, they they were the biggest ones at stripping the coupons off the bond. Let's say you had a dollar bond, and they would find a way to derive value from your bond and bet on it. Uh, and they would bundle them into these little investment vehicles that, you know, hundreds, thousands of institutional buyers all over the world relied upon. Hedge funds relied upon them. You know, they're looking to, uh, we're looking to make a bet that interest rates are going up. What do you got for us? Well, we got these bonds that, uh, you know, were issued over here and going to pay this rate, and they flowed, and we've bundled them together, and we're now offering you an option on them. Wow. And so, you know, they were very creative uh, mm-hmm. in their collateralized debt obligations and mm-hmm. in their structured investment vehicles, or sieves. Uh, the guys at Bear Stearns were the most aggressive in these borderline bogus deals mm-hmm. to be honest i mean if you if you punctured all the air out of those deals you'd realize there's not a lot of there there you so, know, so so is there it sounds like there's just a lot of this going on andrew goss the idea that these companies aren't really investing looking at good companies and investing oh no they're they're, they're, they're just they're gambling they're, they're gambling mm-hmm. and they're just looking for a quick buck absolutely quick bucks wow. without any any work you know mm-hmm. that's the key to it all mm-hmm. and the the greed of jp morgan in using their position as uh, again one of the primary owners of the federal reserve bank in new york to then show up as a white knight mm-hmm. and after you know it was such a bold and blatant theft that look what they did they raised their bid from two dollars yeah to did, you, did you read that where they said that they sure. actually didn't sign some papers so they had to go back and when they went back to the table Barry Stern says we want another billion yeah deal no <laughs> deal deal or no deal so you know on the sunday night when the case was well look if you don't do this deal tonight then tomorrow morning when the markets open and you are out of money um there's going to be hell to pay and so it was virtually at, at under you know such duress uh, at with a gun to their head. How else can you classify it? Mm-hmm. They made the dealer agreed to be acquired as a as a contingency for the bailout. Mm-hmm. Had the Fed just said, "Okay, what do you guys need?" Like they did for everybody else, you know, like they did for long term capital management, like they did for uh, CIT, like they're going to do for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Just give them the money and let them go about their business. But no. Their greed and the greed of J.P. Morgan really shone through on this one. Telephone number is 888-1-NET-6, 888-1-NET-6. We will put you on hold. When we put you on hold, don't hang up. That just means you're going to be put on the air. You'll hear the program on hold. Turn down your computer and we'll put you on the air. 888-1-NET-6 with Andrew Goss. You can also email me during the show right in front of my little face and we'll get a question or a comment to Andrew Goss. If you're shy about being on the radio, and that is simply Patrick at OneRadioNetwork.com. Patrick at OneRadioNetwork.com. So how significant is this if uh, J.P. Morgan is, in fact, 
uh, part of the Federal Reserve, right? They are the main owners of the New York Federal Reserve. That's right. And we've talked about the Federal Reserve being the boys or the people who really control pretty much everything, right? They they control the game. Yeah, it's the Federal Reserve Bank of New York is who we're talking about here. Right. So how significant is this to – can we say then that this could be a uh, – uh, kind of a preview of, of what is going to be coming in the next two or three years, that they're going to use all of their power to just get as much stuff as they can to really consolidate their position, which is already uh, owner of the world. Yeah, really? bailouts and consolidation. Mm-hmm. Now, I find it interesting to note that about a third of America's homeowners are, are going to lose their homes to foreclosure. A third? Yeah. Now, yeah. where did you get that number? Well, I see based on uh, a prices paid index... You know, we, we we actually have about half of the country's homeowners approaching upside down, mm-hmm. meaning they owe more on their houses than they're worth. Mm, but that doesn't affect them making their payment on the house. Indeed, it doesn't. And uh, but unfortunately, a certain percentage of those, and that's why I figure a third, are going to be foreclosed upon, mm-hmm. or they're going to walk away. And those folks are going to be the ones that you know. It's just like the SNL crisis, if you recall. And when the savings and loans took all those houses away from folks, a lot of them in Texas, and uh, then they went bad and they were bought up and then the property was sort of fire sailed. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you look at the same people that bought the, the property were in many instances uh, uh, connected one way or another to the regional bailout. So this is going to be the same thing. It's going to be a repeat. Uh, you're going to see a tremendous pool of property handed over to new owners at bargain basement rates. And uh, the the real estate market is already starting its rebound in the major markets and will, by summertime, be uh, uh, full of itself again. Would it not be uh, beneficial for the mortgage companies not to foreclose and give them moratoriums and, and just hold off a little bit and, and work with people to help them stay there? So, you know, here is the gist of it. Uh, let's su- assume you went down to your local bank and you took a mortgage out two years ago. The odds of your local bank having that mortgage still are, mm-hmm. I don't know, one in a thousand. Right. What they did is they bundled them all together and sent them on down the road. Uh, and these are the the mortgages, really, that are bundled together and held by these big uh, monster funds. Oh, so you don't really have a... M- mortgage holder like if you went directly to wells fargo in the beginning and you had somebody to talk to right right it's not yeah. like you know, you're a guy down the street that cares whether mm-hmm. you're you know what situation you're in now ben bernanke has um, uh, spoken before these bankers associations and urged them exactly what you're saying he mm-hmm. said you know in foreclosure you're only going to get about 50 cents on the dollar mm-hmm. so you'd be better off to just forgive some of the debt and uh, let your your borrower stay in the house or at you, least delay it for a while as the person get their act together exactly like that. Yeah. Exactly. So you think there will be a, a little mixture of a lot of things going on other, and also a lot of foreclosures? Oh, yes. A tremendous amount mm-hmm. of people are going to lose their homes over mm-hmm. this debacle. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm quick to note here that while we've uh, managed to plunk out, by my last count, $360 billion for the banks to bail them out of their problems, we haven't given a nickel uh, to, the, to America's homeowners yet, They're the ones that are actually in this problem. And we could pay off, as I've noted before, Every defaulted mortgage in the country for about $80 billion. I mean, that that's paying them off, not just catching them up. So it seems rather disingenuous that we would give all this money to the banks and nothing for the people. It's as though the banks have found a way, as I said, to socialize their losses while privatizing their gains. Hmm. 
Yeah, but here you are. You you are adamant against this whole idea of weakening the dollar by increasing the money supply. But are you advocating? Are you turning socialist on me? All oh, of a no, no. I mean, but do you think then you're just talking about from a righteous or a just or a yeah. moral position rather than a fiscal position? That's right. From a fiscal position, you know, the reality is that that I mean, I go back to Chrysler. I was opposed to the Chrysler bailout. Mm-hmm. I was opposed to long term capital management and continental Illinois and all the others that followed in their wake. Uh, I believe Bear Stearns should have been allowed to open Monday morning, and if they couldn't pay their bills, then let's reveal where the losses are and let's count the chips. And I'll tell you, a, a great many of of my colleagues and associates, of people who know about this and talk about this, we've heard talk of the doom, you know, the the bust, the crash, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And any sane person looking at the circumstance in a fixed supply of money would come to the same conclusion that the whole thing's going to wind up in a heap. And this is the crisis that really is is at risk here. If we don't take these socialist actions, or if they don't take these socialist actions, then the pile will in fact collapse like uh, just a big house of cards. Even with an elastic monetary system. Well, even yeah. with an elastic system, yeah. Mm-hmm. What we need, what they need to do is what they're doing, uh, and that is just pour money on the problem until it goes away. Just keep pouring. Well, will it go away no matter how much you keep pouring on it? Mean, sure. I mean, all the... Temporarily. Know, it'll yeah. go away. It'll go away for a little while. Oh, temporarily. So are we just, as Ron Paul said, we're just stalling off something really big that's going to happen? Or that's no? right. Really? Yeah. We're just stalling. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, the more we stall, imagine the, t- the, the, you know, the, the two different sides of the coin. The side one is, okay, guys, what are we going to do? Well, we let Bear Stearns go bad, then they can't pay uh, John, and John can't pay Ralph, and Ralph can't pay Paul, and the next thing you know, both John, Ralph, Paul, and Bear Stearns are out of business. Or we bail out Bear Stearns, everybody pays with a dollar that's worth just a little bit less, and nobody can really figure out what's going on, mm-hmm. you know, because people don't get it. Mm. They just don't get it. Milk goes up, and the price mm. of this goes up, and oil goes up, and, and it's uh, all this is happening because of all this newly created money. Right. right. And, I, and I hear them say, in my particular market, gold went up again. No, mm. it didn't. Mm-hmm. Gold stayed exactly the same. The dollar went down again. Mm-hmm. That's what's going on here. And, and that's why I bet on this, uh, Patrick. It's not that I agree with it. But if you have to figure which way these guys are going to go, the way to bet is that they're going to bail their buddies out in every single instance. So, so you're suggesting as long as they're, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but as long as they're devaluing my dollar that might I well, work for, yeah, I might, might as well, well profit. I might as well profit from it. That's right. Yeah, and you profit from it by uh, staying involved in gold. Yeah, those twenty dollar gold pieces. The you know those big one ounce gold pieces. I've been pounding a. Uh, well, maybe I haven't been as aggressive as I should have been in, in suggesting people buy, but I try to make the information available as much as I can that a portion of your wealth belongs in what the Constitution defines as money, gold coins, silver coins, and the like. And that's why you do this for a business. And we should, uh, you know, we should tell people outwardly, this is your business to buy and sell gold coins. Oh, absolutely. And that's how you, that's how you make a living. I mean, you think back and, you know, should we have all been buying, you know, bought gold at $300 rather than chasing it all the way up, up to 1000 you know? Well, my customers follow the, the tried and true accumulate, don't speculate model. So here's the way that I put it to my customers is that, you know, a $20 gold piece will pay your expenses. It's, the, it's a week's wage is what it is, a $20 gold piece. You know, when you hear Grandpa talk about how he'd work all week for 20 bucks, mm-hmm. well, it's the same one. 20 bucks. 
So $20 gold piece is a week's wage. So every week that you plan to be retired, you need a $20 gold piece. That's so, it. I see. So right now it's worth about uh, $950 or whatever. It's about, yeah. I mean, that's a, a, an ounce of gold. A $20 gold piece today is worth, uh, in average uncirculated condition, about thirteen fifty. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's a, a week's wage, I hate to say. But that's what it takes, really. So to, you're suggesting if you need to be retired for... For ten years, you need to go ten times fifty-two and have that many. $20 yeah, you need about five hundred and twenty twenty-dollar gold pieces, and then I don't care if ten years from now, yeah, that's ga- cool. gas is a hundred dollars a gallon. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I, you know, my twenty-dollar gold piece will buy the same amount of stuff that it bought when gas was a nickel a gallon. That's very powerful when you when you think about it, mm-hmm. because now if you're dealing in dollars, you don't really know how many of them you you need. If uh, you're going to retire in five years and maybe you live another 20, right? I mean, how many are you going to need? That's the biggest problem. You don't, you don't, you know, don't know. You don't know. And if, if they're going to double the supply of money, which I think they are, between now and the next decade, so we're going to have twice as much money. So that means today's dollar is worth 50 cents. So, you know, 2020, whatever you think you need today, you're going to need at least twice as much or maybe three times as much uh, in order to be comfortably retired. So that's the reality here. Now, I, I, and you're not saying these numbers lightly, just kind of throwing them out there. I mean, but that's big if somebody's thinking about it right now, mm. saying, wow, I have, you know, $2 million, and this is going to last me, well, for 30 years or whatever. And in 20, what you're saying is in when will that 2020, two- that $2 million will be $1 million. You know, mm-hmm. it'll be just half of what it is now. And if you plan to leave anything to the kids... <laughs> Okay, if you're going to spend through everything you have and then the heck with them, they're on their own. But I just think things are coming for our kids and our grandkids that, boy, they're going to really be grateful for, you know, a little bit of something from the previous generation. Mm-hmm. Well, how is all this going to get better? I mean, if if, if we're still kind of just throwing good money after bad, so to speak, yeah. or bad money after bad, mm-hmm. uh, what what is going to ever turn it around so things get steady again? Or are we on a downward course for a long, long time? Yeah, people have accused me of getting cynical in my old age. When I was younger, in my mid-20s, and really up on my uh, soapbox over this, I used to believe we could all rise up with one voice and, you know, nationalize the Fed mm-hmm. and issue United States notes and take control of the monetary system, weed out the corruption. And as I've gotten older, I don't know, I've just uh, gotten to the point where I think it's an every individual's responsibility to worry about themselves and their families and let these guys do what they're going to do because no amount of action on my part has made the slightest bit of difference uh, in terms of a a national solution. Mm -hmm. I've proposed until I'm blue in the face. We've got a modest proposal. Let Congress do it. I've written newsletter after newsletter. In the early 90s, when I pointed out to Congress and went on a national campaign to use Title 31, Section 5115, to issue United States notes to retire federal debt. This provision, as soon as they looked at it, went, oh, is that what it says we can do? Well, let's just cancel that law. So the one thing that we could have done to to lessen the impact, the Congress went and took that law off the books, almost like, oh, what did that? how did that get there? So you're speaking of the... The idea of cutting out the Federal Reserve, 
creating United States notes, right, and inflating the monetary system, but not have more debt. You just well, pay off the debt. Yeah, inflating it. It's going short dollars as opposed to creating new ones. In other words, Congress saying. We don't have dollars this year and we need them. Rather than borrow them or, or let the Federal Reserve create them and loan them to us, we're going to go short and we're going to create these little certificates that you can give us and then we'll tear them up when we actually do get the dollars that we need. Mm-hmm. That's what a United States note is. No interest. Mm-hmm. And this is the key. When you think about we're spending $450 billion a year on interest on our circulating money. It's a, it's a insane. Congress could print that same, and, and, you know, in fact, it's mostly electronic now. We could circulate that same supply of money for a total root cost of about $700. <laughs> and instead, we're paying $450 billion in interest. It's, it's absolutely insane. And who, who does that interest go to? Well, you know, J.P. Morgan Chase, Goldman Sachs, Solomon Brothers, Lazard Frères, Hong Kong Shanghai Bank Corporation. You know, it certainly doesn't go into the pockets of we the people, that's mm-hmm. for sure. Well, we really got a we really got a uh, <laughs> a way to go to to free ourselves if if we are destined to use dollars. I mean, I mean it is really about us uh, we the people protecting ourselves. Yeah, I think yeah. it's about Americans realizing that they're shareholders. You know, when you boil it down in this fashion, um, your dollar is representative of a single share in the Federal Reserve System. That's what they've converted it to. It used to be, be a certain quantity of gold or silver, and now it's simply one share. So that's the top number in a fractional equation. The bottom number would be the total supply of shares. So you own one of 10,000 or you own one of 10 million, whatever the number is, that's how you re- define the value of your dollar. To get a good look at this, in 1980, there were $1 trillion in circulation. Well, I'm going to lower that. Now we've got a little interference on the line. Uh, I'll stay there just a second. Let me tell you, this is one radio network. This is great stuff, isn't it? We'll get back with Andrew in just a second. And uh, we're here every Wednesday night, 7 to 8 p.m. on one radio network. Tomorrow night, we're going to be talking with a gentleman who has uh, come up with... Uh, an amazing way to put minerals into your, your, your vegetables. And it's using ocean water and sea salt and vortex machinery. And it's really cool. And uh, this will be a way that you can... Uh, um, oops, still going on. This will be a way that you can do some gardening at home and get an amazing amount of vegetables in your... in your veg- amazing amount of minerals in your vegetables. And this is going to be key in the years to come is to be able to do uh, vegetable gardening at home. And this uh, gentleman has a very cool product. He's in upstate New York. He's a marine biologist. Are you still there, Andrew? Yeah. Oh, now nah, we still got it here. Uh, why don't I drop in you dial me back, huh? Hold on a second, folks. Sorry about that. We had, uh, we've been having this every now and then with Andrew on the uh, certain uh, piece of equipment. He's sending it off to the factory tomorrow to get it fixed so it doesn't do it anymore. But uh, these things happen. If you'd like to call and be on the show, it is 888-1-NET-6. 
Nat Six, are you back? And there we are. And there we are. 888-1-NAT-6 is our telephone number. We'll put you on hold. As you're on hold, simply hang out for a second, and then we'll put you on the air. You'll be able to hear the program turn down the computer, uh, the volume, because it's about two or three seconds behind. Okay, so what are some other ways? Uh, we, we know that we can buy. You, you still like uh, to protect yourself from all of this going on uh, and the and the virtually uh, uh, certain fact that the money supply is going to be increasing dramatically in the years to come, knowing what – well, you were about to say in 1980 then uh, we had $1 trillion dollars. And what is it today of how many dollars in the money supply? It's like yeah, 13? Your, yeah. Your dollar in 1980 was 1 over 1 trillion. Right. And now your dollar is 1 of 13 trillion. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the Dow Jones and Industrial Average, in 1980 it sat at 1,000, and now it's close to 13,000. So really what has happened is you've only kept up with inflation if you've been in the Dow Industrials this entire time. Mm -hmm. And you know you've been paying taxes as though you're making money. Mm -hmm. So that uh, the lesson, I think, is don't be a shareholder. You know, if you're going to store your wealth in something, make it anything but holding those shares. Dollars. Yeah, dollars. When you... When you buy a CD, you know, you're saying, okay, here's all my money, and now you give me one big share certificate. When you buy a bond, same thing. Um, when you buy any debt instrument, an annuity, uh, passbook account, money market, you know, name name your poison. If it's a bond debt of any sort, if you're uh, getting a fixed interest rate against a, a fixed supply of, mm-hmm. of dollars, you're getting beaten badly, and you, and you need to stop doing that. And uh, there are ways to put uh, your retirement accounts in gold by by doing these exchange-traded funds, huh? Yeah, if uh, if you can't, I mean, it's my least favorite choice because one of the things that makes gold money is the fixed and limited supply of it. When you start buying electronic gold, let's face it, you know, there's no shortage of that (laughs) Mm -hmm. or certificates for gold. I'll print you up all of those that you want. But it's the actual gold is what I advocate the purchase of, you know, actual gold coins. So you hold those and keep them safe, and then you know what you got. Exactly. Yeah. So, 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 so give, is, it, is, it, is it chancy to buy a, a stock uh, which is uh, pinned to the price of gold? Absolutely. Huh? Yeah, of course it is. Is it? You've got that systemic risk, you know, the risk that uh, it goes bad and they don't deliver. That's the, the biggest risk. Uh, the second biggest risk is that the federal government decides to nationalize gold again, and they take the whole entire fund. So, I mean, they're... They, windfall, can, do, they yeah. can do that? Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. Windfall profits tax? Yeah, they did it in 1934. They made it illegal to own gold, and only that day you had to actually bring your gold in. In this way, they would just electronically confiscate the entire fund. There mm. you go. Wow. And so we're cashing you out of your fund. Here's your $100 a share today. And then the next day, it's $250. Wouldn't there be right in the streets over there? Well, you would think there would be there, but there wasn't in 34. You know, mm-hmm. they do that in a circumstance where times are so hard mm. that uh, everybody's just thankful for anything they get. Now, they, they have never tried to confiscate gold coins, or have they? Well, it's funny, you know, as I was talking to a legal scholar about this uh, cases, uh, the Supreme Court case concerning my free speech rights, mm-hmm. he said, look, the courts, I wouldn't count on anything. He said, 
I would count on the courts saying that the sun rises in the west and sets in the east. And, you know, they would swear that that's a fact. And he told me it's called a legal fiction. Yes. And it's funny. I've heard of legal fiction before. In my field, the legal fiction is that a $20 gold piece and a $20 bill are exactly the same. At law, they're perfectly interchangeable. A silver dollar and a paper dollar are exactly the same. Hmm. They're perfectly interchangeable. That's the legal fiction. That's the way we get around that constitutional provision in Article 1 that says, no state shall make anything but gold or silver coin a tender in payment of debt. We pretend that the $20 gold piece and the and the silver dollar, or excuse me, $20 gold piece and silver dollar, right, are, are interchangeable for their respective $20 bill and $1 bill as though they were that item. Mm-hmm. It's called... It's called what? A legal, kinda, a legal fiction. Legal fiction. And the only way to maintain the legal fiction is to leave the money alone. So they've left the money alone in every instance where they felt necessary uh, to take that velvet glove off the iron fist. Mm-hmm. So you like buying gold coins, holding those. Silver, is still, silver still a good uh, good thing to invest in? Sure. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and what's the best way to do that? Oh, well, I like rare silver coins. But I wanted to bring another little aside up. Okay. Uh, I accidentally had a $3 gold piece in my pocket as I was clearing through airport. Now, anyone knows you can't take $10,000 out of the country without f- filing 100 different forms. Now, I had a $3 gold piece that was easily worth more than $3, <laughs> if you know what I mean. It was worth a lot? It was worth a lot. And I'm talking high four figures. High five figures, excuse me. Really? Almost, almost six figures. Yeah, it was a very rare $3 gold piece. What were you and, doing with that in your pocket? Well, I'm a, that's what I do. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so and I you just, went to the airport and didn't I bought it. it. And I, yeah, I didn't realize I had it in my briefcase. And so as right. I'm going through customs, I was like, oh, darn, I should have put that in the vault, but okay. So the guy saw it. He looked at it. He goes, what's this? I go, it's a coin. He said, what's it worth? I said, what does it say? He looked. He goes, $3. I said, well, there you go. <laughs> He handed it back to me. I put it back in my briefcase. Now, if I would have had that same corresponding amount of cash, I bet I would have been in some room somewhere explaining where it all came uh, yeah, from. Yeah, you'd still be in that room. Yeah. <laughs> With a light over your head. Exactly. <laughs> wow, that's very interesting. And you, you, you said before on past shows that, now, if you wanted to leave that $3 gold piece to your daughter's, or my nephew. Or your nephew. I would put it in a little note. I'd put it in a box in my safety deposit box. And right. I'd put the contents of this box are the property of my nephew and are only here for safekeeping. Mm-hmm. I say this because I actually have a box for my nephew in my safe. He's a coin nut. Mm-hmm. He's 10 years old. Mm-hmm. So I know I'm going to leave him coins. And when the time comes and I'm gone, they'll open my box and mm-hmm. they'll pull that out and say, oh, well, that's the property of his nephew. And they'll hand it right to them. Mm-hmm. But if they do open it up, they're going to find maybe $3, <laughs> maybe 450 It's not going to be a lot of face value. It's just going to be a lot of compact value. So I like coins that have a lot of what we call numismatic value. Uh, others like coins that have a lot of intrinsic value. Like the, the, just the content of the gold or so. Yeah. yeah. And the nice thing about this field is there's something for everybody. You know, the same way I can offer you a $3 gold piece that's worth $50,000 that has a third of an ounce of gold in it, I can also offer you a $20 gold piece that's worth $1,100 that's worn and maybe has been used as jewelry and mm-hmm. sells for very close mm-hmm. to its actual gold content. Mm-hmm. There's now, a little something for everyone. Now, uh, this, this $3 gold piece, is say, say you have one that's worth 50000 and somebody said, man, 
You know, I'm sold on this concept, and I sure would like to get one of these guys because that's just a great thing for my retirement. I mean, well, I'm not selling a mine for less no, than seventy. No, I know that, but I mean, you. There's still a risk, though, that this this it won't be worth that much in, well, there's in your, 2020, right? Well, there's no? your risk. Is that yeah. okay? Here's the risk. I own it today. It's fifty thousand dollars is what I could sell it for today without trying, right? Mm-hmm. 20 years ago, it was $21,000. You know, 20 years before that, it was $12,000. But this same thing is true back then as it is now. I'm not selling it unless I'm getting 20% or even 30% more than what it's worth right now. So I'm like my number 70000 That's what I want for it. Why? Because even when I get that 70000 I could spend the next 10 years looking for another one and never find one. Hmm. And by the time I do find another one, it's going to be 70000 So for the very rare coins, the spread, the difference between what you can buy it for and what you can sell it for on any given day is much, much wider than it is for a coin that's based solely on its gold content. Hmm. Where, you know, a $20 gold piece that's been used as jewelry that sells for a 10% premium over its gold content, I would buy for 1075 and sell for 1150 Not a very big spread. Certainly, if you buy it from me, I can turn right around and buy another one. They're all over the place. So liquidity is definitely a function of the coin and a function of time. But I would say that 20 years from now... You could easily double or triple or even quadruple the value of that $3 gold piece just based on the fact that it's very limited in supply, very fixed in nature, and this market is expanding at a rate that just boggles the mind. And what would happen for that that coin to ha- uh, go down in value? What would have to happen in, in well, the they'd world? Have to, they'd have to discover a bunch of them, mm-hmm. or the dollar would turn around and become more valuable. In which case, you know, I don't need to be in this business anyway. Mm-hmm. If if I thought the dollar was going to increase in value, I'd be in the bond market. I mean, that would be the place to be. I could sell bonds. It's easy enough to do. Uh, but if you think that the dollar is going to fall further in value, then anything like this, tangible, physical, you know, a 55 Chevy, an old Fender guitar, a collection of Hummels, some good artwork, a tree, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, anything tangible is going to take more dollars to buy as the years go on. Hmm. And that's really the basis of your message, eh? Yeah, plus, after you've piled up five or 600 of the $20 gold pieces, a $3 gold piece is pretty neat. And when you can pack all of that value into one little area, boy, that just offers a whole different level of appeal. If you'd like to come in in the few minutes remaining, 888-1NET6, our telephone number, 888-1NET6 with Andrew Goss. He's here every Wednesday night. Um, so, so what's a fellow to do now? So we painted a kind of an interesting picture and he's reading things and hearing things every day about waiting. Is there another shoe going to drop? I mean, how many shoes are going to drop? And I've been reading that the commercial mortgages are next to really start taking a whammy. Um, what, what's your opinion about what's going to be happening in the next few months? And, and what are some things that people can do right now other than buying, uh, uh, gold coins and, and buying more uh, things that are appreciating in value. Well, as far as the other shoe dropping, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the Federal Reserve has made it clear now. They've set up in the middle of Wall Street a pile of $200 billion in cash, effectively. And they've said, look, anybody out there that's got a bad piece of paper, a bad debt, any kind of debt, and y- y- you want to turn it into money, just bring it here onto this pile. Don't wait until you're in trouble. Do it now. 
So the idea that we're going to see some major institution fail in the coming days is very remote. Mm -hmm. And this is by design, not by accident. This is why they made this $200 billion available. So although the increase in money supply is going to be slow, steady, and dramatic, uh, the news that would cause people to panic is not going to be so dramatic. And that's what they're most concerned about. Indeed, right? that is what they're most yeah. concerned about. So while you might not see it in the news every day, this bank's in trouble, that bank's in trouble, you will see dollar making new lows, dollar making new lows, dollar making new lows, especially as it relates to food prices. Folks, if you don't have a pantry in, yeah, or a garden, put it huh? in tomorrow. Mm -hmm. If you're not putting in a garden this year, put in a garden this year. Mm -hmm. Do everything you can to insulate yourself from short-term price shocks because I mean, you're going to see it in everything, wheat, uh, you're going to see it in flour, you're going to see it in milk, you're going to see it in every food stuff that you can imagine. It's going to be increasing in price over the summer months. And by the time the fall comes, uh, harvest time and beyond, I believe you're going to see prices significantly higher in food than you are right now. So what can a person do now if you've put off building that pantry? Do it now. You know, don't wait another day. Start stocking up a month or two worth of groceries. I was a military brat when I was a kid. My family would go shopping once a month. Hmm. If you go shopping every week or every couple of days, something's wrong. I know I like fresh stuff as much as the next guy, but you ought to have a pantry of your non-perishable foods put away, everything stocked in for months. Uh, that way you can withstand price increases in cocoa and coffee and flour and sugar and wheat and all the basics of what you need mm -hmm. to feed your family. Mm -hmm. And that would be the biggest lesson I would take away. Yeah, and we've been looking into some trying to find some really good, high, high uh, uh, nutrient-dense foods that are really good for you. Like, like hemp. <laughs> yeah, hemp and those kind of things that people, yeah. superfoods that people can put away just in case. So you have a couple months supply in case things get strange. Well, this is very interesting. And, you know, I've known you for 10 years and, and I've, and I, you've always been much more conservative. I mean, it sounds like you really suspecting that some, uh, something's rotten in Denmark here more so than ever. Indeed. Uh, and, you know, I get this from people that I talk to. Uh -huh. And that, and this is probably, I guess, my biggest, uh, indicator is I talk to people, hundreds every day. Right. And when I talk to truckers, they're painting the gloomiest picture I've ever heard them paint. Why is that? Well, they're telling me it's, it, it takes between 80 cents and a dollar just to run their truck for a mile. A diesel fuel's over $4 and heading to $5, and that the price that they're uh, being, uh, the cost that they have to pay in mm. order to move goods uh, is far less than what they're being paid. And, and this is really what the trouble is. So truckers are going to be raising their prices, uh, and that's just going to drive the cost of everything else. Mm -hmm. uh, now, uh, I mentioned the commercial mortgages. Do you see that as a big one? People are talking about that next? Not at all. No, not at all. Not at all. In fact, uh, that's the one bright spot in all of this, uh, commercial mortgages. Okay. But if I've seen the gold of 2000 one time in a headline, I've seen it 20 times over the last week. Uh, do, do you think that's in our future? Well, I mean, if you use the bogus uh, CPI indicator, which I, you know, I believe is way understated. So even if you just use that faulty indicator, and you adjust for inflation, the last peak that we saw in gold at eight hundred dollars, you'd have gold somewhere north of twenty four hundred. So just to be even with what it was in nineteen eighty, when the money supply was one thirteenth of where it is right now, gold would have to double and a half. 
And so <laughs> do I think 2,000 or 2,500 is out of the realm? No. Uh -huh. But I also know that uh, those that own and control the Federal Reserve Bank have a, a method to their madness of uh, shorting gold that they don't own in an attempt to drive it down in price. If, if you want to check out GATA.org and the fine work of Bill Murphy over there, uh, you'll see a much stronger case than I could make for it. GATA.org. Uh, GATA.org. Uh, mm -hmm. They'll lay it out for you how these folks use the derivatives market to suppress the price of gold so that rather than getting a overnight $100 move, you get a series of $10, $10 moves. Uh, it's a very managed commodity. Mm -hmm. So I'm, uh, I understand that they can shake it either way they need to shake it. Uh, you have to simply buy when you can afford it, accumulate, and don't speculate. Is consumer money, uh, the price of that, going up now? It's going down. It's going down. Money for consumers, you mean to borrow? To borrow, right. Yeah. yeah. That's going down. Hey, remember what we said about mortgage rates? Uh, I guess I was pretty close to accurate on those. And uh, remember what I said? Low fives by the summertime. So, you know, you'll see mortgage rates lower than they were mm -hmm. uh, during the boom of the market. And you'll have Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac pumping out money to just about anybody with a pulse. So what used to be subprime will now be prime for Fannie so Mae. So you mean they're going to go back at it again? Oh, they're heading back at it with a vengeance, <laughs> with a fury this time. That's, uh, that's amazing. It's nowhere near the end. So are you recommending then to folks if prices are going down in some areas? <laughs> Oops. Did it again. Uh, we, we're talking about uh, uh, the food thing. Don't forget tomorrow night, uh, 7 o'clock. Andy did it again on us. Um, we're going to send that thing off tomorrow and get it. Let me see. Still going on. Uh, th th this is a fascinating guy we're going to talk to. He's a marine biologist in upstate New York, and he's created this really interesting, and I'm just totally interested in uh, picking his brain, and you'll learn step-by-step step of how he did what he did and create something that you can use on your garden, whether or not you have a, a little five-foot plot or a 20-footer or, or doing some gardening on your patio or on your uh, uh, balcony outside. And uh, this is going to be good stuff because it's going to be loaded with the – still going on. It's going to be loaded with uh, minerals. So that's coming tomorrow night at 7 o'clock on Friday night here on OneRadioNetwork.com. We're going to have a fun show. It is uh, going to be with Sam Grafe, and Sam is an animal trainer. That's right. And he's really a good one, too. And he's going to be taking your questions. We're going to be talking about the ins and outs of taking care of Fido and Buffy and Lassie and all of that so you have a better relationship with your animals. You there, Ann? I am, indeed. Okay, well, okay, we're going to send this off tomorrow, right? Oh, yes. To get fixed, and so this is not going to happen anymore. So are you an advocate now of using this consumer credit uh, at a low interest rate and then investing in uh, tangible items that are increasing in value like gold or other collectibles? I let my record speak for itself on that. Uh, you know, four years ago, five years ago, when I was screaming that very concept out at the top of my lungs. Use debt as a blessing. Use debt as a blessing. Anyone who took my advice and borrowed all the equity out of their house and bought gold coins has tripled their money. Mm -hmm. And now they could sell a third of their gold coins, pay back that debt, and uh, in fact uh, have you know, a tremendous pile of value. Mm -hmm. So I think debt is a blessing. And I think if, if the money that is derived from debt is used properly, then you can multiply and amplify uh, your returns, which is what the big boys do. The main thing is you're not suggesting using debt 
to buy stuff that's going to depreciate cars and oh, big screen so. TVs or go on oh, vacation so. and stuff like that. Yeah, in fact, one of my colleagues today was showing me that new Charger RT. He's like, hey, we should buy a couple of these. They're only $46,000. Well, <laughs> I think about how many gold coins I could buy with 46000 mm-hmm. And I point to my $5,000 uh, 1994 model car and say, well, the wheels still turn on this one, so you're not going to catch me wasting money like that. But at the same time... If the opportunity came tomorrow to buy an 1875 $3 gold piece and I needed to borrow that same $50,000, boy, I wouldn't hesitate for a moment. I would pay 8 even 10% for that money. So interesting you said that, Andy. I'm about to give back a uh, 2007 beautiful Prius, right? Nice car. Sure. And give up a car payment, which is huge. Sure. And I have a 96 Chevy truck that runs like a champ, thank you, and I don't have a payment on it. And uh, mm-hmm. that's where I'm going. Haven't had a car payment for 20 years. Yeah, you, yeah, you just don't do it, right? No, I do not. And I do not use debt to finance depreciating assets ever. Hmm. And so if I can't save enough money to buy something, a couch, a stereo, a TV, a vacation, because there's no, I mean, there's limited economic value there, then I don't buy it. But at the same time, if I need to use debt to buy a tangible asset, boy, I'll load up on that debt. I won't even think twice. Mm-hmm. But you got to be able to make the payments, all right? Well, you know, even if I have to borrow to make the payments, I'll do that too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not, uh, again, I'm not averse to debt. As long as I get a tangible asset in return, in my view, is I can always sell the tangible asset if I need to. So I can assume then, as we wrap up here, that uh, as gold kind of does a little trip to do, 5% here or there goes down and up to buy the dips, as they say. I mean, well, are you a buyer then? I'm a, I'm a constant buyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, the price of gold falling in the last, uh, say, five trading days, half of those, half of that fall has been wiped out now. Uh, they, it's already gained back half of what it gave up five days ago. Uh, so, I mean, if you can get in that quick of a window, but that's like trying to speculate. So, I t- tell my clients, pick a dollar amount each month. And just average your way in each month or each quarter or each year mm-hmm. and accumulate. You're not speculating that you've bought at the bottom or the middle or the top, but rather you just continue on your accumulation project. And when it's done, you'll have a pile of what you need in order to see you through a comfortable retirement mm-hmm. or a pile of what you need to pass on to the next generation that's not going to be taxed to death, is private, is uh, and, and will protect them against the inevitable debt that they're going to be faced with. And, and I, I've had people ask me when we talk about this on the street, they'll say, well, how do you know that somebody's going to be there to buy that that uh, that uh, antique Chevy or the artwork or the gold coin or the other stuff you recommend? Uh, uh, how do we know somebody's going to be there to buy it when we want to? Well, that's what supply and demand is all about. You know, I've looked at, uh, if you can go back to the Great Depression which would have been the absolute opposite of an inflationary surge, Mm -hmm. there was no money anywhere. And the only people that had money were the rich and super rich. And you look at the Christie's auction catalogs from those years, the Depression years, and you'll find that's the only thing you could sell. Nothing else had any value. But anything that was unique or artistically valuable or in fixed supply or historically significant... Boy, that stuff just sold week after week after week after week. That's that's interesting. It always sells uh, because, listen, paper money, especially electronic paper money, is very easy to come by these days. Whereas that 55 Chevy, you know, there's fewer and fewer every year. That $20 gold piece, there are fewer and fewer every year. Uh, even in this latest run-up in gold, Patrick, I can't tell you how many low-grade $20 gold pieces were just thrown into the hopper and melted. 
how many half dollars from the 40s were just melted in silver hmm. just to get the silver content. Hmm. So the more attrition there is, the more loss there is, the more population increase. It's a basic supply and demand equation. And I believe for things of value, there will always be a buyer. And I suspect that there's a lot more people than one might be able to imagine that have uh, that are clever and oh, have yeah. and have got a lot of stuff put by, as they say, right? Indeed, put back, you know, in, squ- in the squirrely rat hole. Yeah, yeah, they do. Well, we're out of time, Mister Goss. It's always a pleasure, boy. I had fun. We covered a lot of territory. Thank you so much. Uh, let's uh, give the folks your uh, uh, contact information if they'd like to talk to you. Sure. If you'd like to give us a call, the number is 800-468-2646. Know the Source on One Radio Network.